This is one of my favorite stories. An older preacher told the story of a young minister interviewing for his first pastorate. And the pulpit committee had invited him to come over to their church for the interview. And the committee chairman asked, Son, do you know the Bible pretty good? And the young minister said, Yes, pretty good. The chairman asked, Which part do you know the best? He responded saying, I know the New Testament the best. Well, which part of the New Testament do you know the best? Asked the chairman. The young minister said, Several parts. The chairman said, Well, why don't you tell us the story of the prodigal son? The young man said, Fine. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night, and he fell upon stony ground, and the thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Solomon and his wife, Gemara, came by and carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of. But as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair on a limb and hung him there for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he did hunger. And the ravens came and fed him. The next day the three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock, and he called the ship to Nineveh. And when he got there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall, and he said, Chunk her down, boys, chunk her down. And they said, How many times shall we chunk her down? Till seven times seven? And he said, Nay, but seventy times seven. And they chuckled, chucked her down four hundred and ninety times. And she burst asunder in the midst, and then they picked up the twelve baskets of leftovers and the resurrections, whose wife shall she be? And the committee chairman suddenly interrupted the young minister and said to the remainder of the committee, Fellows, I think we ought to ask the church to call him as a minister. He's awful young, but he sure knows his Bible. (laughs) Well, I want you to turn, if you would, over to the book of Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read one verse. We're living in a time in which uh, it appears that the church is under attack. Not only is the church under attack, but the main thing that's under attack is the Word of God. I talk to too many people that say they believe. They want to talk to me about how God loves everybody. But when you you confront them about God's Word, they don't have a clue to what the Bible says. And I really believe that Jesus, when Jesus said, Thy Word is truth, I believe with all my heart, that that is literally, absolutely true. So I want to I read one verse of Scripture, and one of the things that has been with the Word of God and what we're doing, we're dividing it up now. we got preachers that are standing in the pulpit saying that you do not have to understand the, the Old Testament, that you can just take that and tear it out. There's a lot of preachers today that are preaching in pulpits that never mention prophecy, Never mention that Jesus is coming back. I even hear of young men that are coming out of seminary that are, are, don't even believe in the second coming of Jesus, don't even believe in the virgin birth, don't believe even in the resurrection. I don't know what they're preaching if that's, that's the case. But I believe with all my heart there is a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want to prove that to you today. I want you to see in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, listen to what it says. It tells us why there is this connection. Listen. It says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for an admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Listen again. It says, All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, written for us to be undergirded, 
upon whom the ends of the ages have come. When I read the scriptures, it tells me simply there's 52 quotations in the book of Matthew that are out of the Old Testament. There's 108 script prophecies that are pro- prophesied in the Bible that say nothing but about the first coming of Jesus. And so I really believe with all my heart there are over 300 prophecies in the Bible. And so in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about Israel. They're in the wilderness. And so as a result of that, I really want to show you today the connection between the Old and the New Testament. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray simply that you would help me in this. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. For you're our strength, you're our uh, redemption, you're everything, Father. Now, I believe your word is truth, just what Jesus said. But I ask you to be with me today and help us to see the word that you have for us. Watch over us, Father, I pray, and I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. It's always been interesting to me that when I read in the book of Hebrews chapter 3, when God describes the 12 spies that came back with an evil report, 10 of them came back, Caleb and Joshua were ready to go, even though there were giants and walled cities and everything else, And God sent them back in the wilderness to wander for 40 years until that generation died out. But it's been interesting to me that it says there in in Hebrews 3, verse 10 and verse 11, it says, Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said they will always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And so he puts them back into the wilderness until that generation would die out, before he'd have a generation would do what he asked him to do that would go in and take the promised land. But it's interesting to me that in verse 11, God says this. He said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He didn't say they wouldn't enter into the promised land. He said they would not enter into my rest. And I think that's exactly what he's saying to us today. He goes on to say this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and and 11. He says, there remains therefore rest for God's people. He's talking to you. If you're tore all to pieces all the time, if you're going through things and, and you're having problem after problem and you're not being able to overcome those things and yet the Bible says that which is born of God overcomes the world. If that's happening to you, then I'm telling you this message is for you because the Bible says there's a rest for the people of God. That you've got to learn how to, let, learn how to wa- lay in his arms for a while. He, for he who has entered his rest, look at this, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from him. What do you mean he ceased from his works? It means you've given it over to God and you leave it there. That's what it means. That's what it means. You've given it over to him and you leave it there. The Lord tells us that these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, a warning, a warning that the New Living Bible says they were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Did you notice that? They were written down, they were written down for us who live at the end of the age. We're living in a time that we believe that we're living in that time. We're living in the end of the age. 
The New Testament uses the word mystery. It's interesting to me also as it uses the word mystery, 28 times it uses the word mystery. And yet it is not found in the Old Testament. The word mystery is not found in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it's used 28 times. And why is that? Well, it's because the word mystery, it means this. It means in the Greek, it means that which awaits disclosure or interpretation. In other words, the mystery that was shown over here in the Old Testament is not revealed until we get to the New Testament. And one of the greatest mysteries that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And what is the mystery that they did not see in the Old Testament that is revealed to us in the New Testament? It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of His glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Which is Christ in you is the hope of glory. As God looks over the portals of heaven and He looks at your life and He looks at you as what He expects from you. What is it that God wants from you? I'll tell you exactly what He wants from you. He wants Christ in you so filled in your presence that everything you do, you do it because Jesus is in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's what it says. So in other words, it means that which is introduced in the Old Testament not explained is now explained in the New Testament. So then anybody who tells you that the Old Testament is not relevant, and I don't care how many DDDs they have behind their name, relevant does not understand the Scripture. The word, God is, the word of God is the truth because Jesus said it was. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. One of the main reasons that I believe the Bible to be the word of God and the source for finding all truth, there are more than one reason, but one of the main reasons I believe the Bible to be the word of God and the truth, it's its ability to predict the future before it ever happens. And this book does this. It's the only book that I know that can predict the future before it happens. And in and, and Isaiah 46, 9, listen to what God says. He says this, Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. Verse 10, listen to what he says. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. Declaring the end from the beginning. No other book in all the world has the prophetic quality that the Bible has. One such book is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet in the 6th century, 600 years before Jesus was ever born. And Zechariah was commissioned by God to complete the unfinished business of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. He begins by encouraging his people. But like Isaiah and the other prophets, Zechariah is given a vision of the future, not only of Israel, but of the coming Messiah, and even to to the the millennial kingdom. Did you hear what I said? Zechariah takes Israel all the way from where they were 600 years before, and he takes them all the way through, and he takes them all the way into the millennial kingdom. That's what he does. Now, For those who are all millennialists, that means that they don't believe in the thousand years. Even though 
even though the Revelation chapter 20 tells us that six times it uses the word thousand there. And all millennials believe that we're in the tribulation right now. And the only way that can be is they must take the whole book of Revelation and make it symbolic. Nothing can be taken literally. And so the other thing that happens, they also teach replacement theology. What does that mean? They believe that the church has now substituted for Israel. I want you to listen to what Paul says. Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, he says, all Israel will be saved. But he also says in Romans 11, verse 1, it says, has God cast away his people? The answer is no, he has not. God hasn't done with Israel. Listen, if God has cast away his people, if, he can, if Israel cannot count on the covenants that God made with them, then how can we count on John 3, 16? The Bible tells me in, in Titus chapter uh, 2 that God never lies, that he never goes back on his word. And I believe that with all my heart. But what he says, has, has God cast them aside? No, he has not. The church has not play, replaced Israel. But God, what is the purpose then? And this is why I'm a premillennialist. What is the purpose then of the tribulation? The purpose of the tribulation, the seven years, it'll be one of the worst times in the history of mankind will be because what? It's for two reasons. One, it is for unbelievers that have never come to Jesus that are going to have a terrible time that time. But it's also for Israel that they would repent and that they would see who God is. They would see who Jesus is, that they miss the Messiah because the Bible says that God, Jesus came into his own and his own uh, received him not. So the book of Zechariah, which has just blessed me so much, it parallels with the book of Daniel. In Zechariah, for instance, 1.16, this is what, in 1.16, here's what it says. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. What's he talking about? What's he talking about here? Zerubbabel had to rebuild the temple. It started in 536 B.C., started, and it was finished in around 525-16 B.C. In Zechariah 1.17, it says this, again proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord again will comfort Zion, and again will choose Jerusalem. The cities of Judea would be expanded, be prosperous again, and the prosperity will be completely fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Verse 18 says this, it tells, then I raised my eyes and I looked and there were four horns. Who are those four horns? Well, we know then from the, from the book of Daniel, there was Babylon, there was Persia, there was Greece, and then there was Rome. But then many believe these four world powers excuse me, are made up of many countries that will come against Israel, what we're fixing to see. Why do you think Russia today is in the bed with Iran? That they're going to come. That they're going to come against Israel. What's fixing to happen? And Israel is in a mess over there right now. By the way, they're trying to change their constitution, trying to change their their laws and everything else. In Zechariah two verse four and five, it gives us a picture of the millennium. The glory of the God will inhabit and protect and expanding Jerusalem. And verse eleven, Jerusalem will expand in complete peace and prosperity when Jesus dwells there during during the millennium. In, in Zechariah 8.3, it says, uh, it says this, 
Zechariah 8, 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth and the mountains of the Lord of hosts and the holy mountain. He also says this in 13, verse 2. Um, he says, it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall be no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from, from the land that Jerusalem would be characterized by holiness and truth in the millennial kingdom. He says this also in Zechariah 8, verse 7 and 8. Uh, uh, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land and from the land of the west. In verse 8, it goes on to say, I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God and the truth for 600 years before. And what are the Jews doing? They're returning back to Israel. Zechariah 8.20 it says that the Gentiles would come and seek the Lord. But notice the phrase in there. It says, thus the Lord's host says, people shall come and inhabit of many cities. He goes on to say, in that day, in that day. Zechariah 11, verse 15 and through 17. It says, and the Lord said to me, take, take, uh, next take for yourself the implements of the foolish shepherd. Who's the foolish shepherd? He goes on in verse 16. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those who are broken, nor feed those who will still stand, but he will sit on the east of the flesh of the fat and tear the hoofs of pieces. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Antichrist that's coming. The Antichrist that will be here. In chapters 12, uh, he's talk, he talks about... in. And in chapters 11 there, he talks about a worthless servant. In chapters 12, verse 1 through 8, uh, he talks about Ezekiel, and this is Ezekiel 38, 39. The armies will gather around Jerusalem in that day. And what will happen in that day when all these powerful nations come against Jerusalem ready for the battle of Armageddon? Listen to what it says in Zechariah 14, 1 through 3. Here comes all these armies in. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Uh, go on to verse uh, 2 it says for I will gather all the nations of the battle against Jerusalem the city shall be taken the house is rifled the women ravished and half of the city shall go into captivity but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city God protects his own and the Lord listen to this and the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle here comes all these mighty armies that are gathered against little bitty Israel and God's going to step in and he's not going to, they're not going to have to hardly lift a hand. And God is going to wipe them, going to wipe them off. In Zechariah 12.10, it tells us that, that it says this, And I will pour out in the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieves for him, grieves for a firstborn. What's it saying? Jews will in that day will realize that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And Isaiah 66 uh, verse 8 it, it says this, who, ha, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall the nation be born in once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth. One day a nation will be born. Why? Because they're going to see Jesus coming in the clouds. That's the second coming. And they're going to know he was the Messiah. Now here's the question. You see, Leah, okay, you, you, you tell us all this stuff. And that was just in the book of Zechariah. We can go to Ezekiel, go to Isaiah, go to all these different places. But how do you know that all this is true? How do you know that these prophecies have been fulfilled in Zechariah concerning Christ? 
Well, listen to what he says in 3.8. Because in, in 3.8 it says, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are wonder sign, for behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. What do you mean by branch? The branch to appear. Remember when this was written 600 years before? The branch is a descendant of David. Isaiah 11 verse 1 and 2 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Uh, Verse uh, 2 says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is Zechariah. Saying that Jesus is coming. Isaiah 42, 1 through 3, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one of whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Verse 2, uh, it says, He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in a servant. Verse 3, uh, and the bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, he will bring forth justice for This is Jesus. This is Zechariah talking about Jesus. You know, it, it, there's, there's a wonderful thing where these Messianic Jews, they sit in a chair and they all talk about, they all talk about their conversion experience of coming to Christ. It's, unbel- it's really great. I mean, it's just a great thing. Now, they, they were, their family disowned them and everything else as a result of that. But they all had one thing in common. You know what there was one thing in common? Well, common was simply this, that, that they were taught that Jesus was a Catholic. He wasn't a Catholic. He was a Jew. And they said their eyes were open when they saw that Jesus was actually a Jew. I mean, they all, every one of them say the very same thing. Why? They do not, when you read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, they've still got that, when they meet on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath, they've still got that veil over their eyes that they do not see Jesus Christ as the mighty Son of God. And the world doesn't see that either today. In chapter, chapter 3, he talks about a stone. He talks, at chapter 3, verse 9, he talks about a stone. A stone with seven eyes. Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and, and 6, uh, it's, it says this. It says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And then he goes on and says, you also as a living stone are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 6, it says, Therefore it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. What's he saying? He provided the means by which sin could be forgiven. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 9, verse 14. It says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In Romans 11, verse 26 and 27, it tells us this. It says, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And then it says in 27, For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He talks about in Zechariah, I'm not going to go through all these, Zechariah 6, 11, 13. He talks about a branch that will become a mustard seed, that the kingdom of God who starts at a mustard seed will grow. He talks about in in Zechariah 11, uh, 11, 11, 11, 11, verse, uh, verse 11, and listen to what it says here. If this is not a prophecy, I don't know what is. 
uh, Zechariah 11, verse 11. Uh, I'm waiting, guys. No, not 6, 11. Zechariah 11, 11. You're, all right, there we go. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. He goes on to verse 12. Then I said to them, It is agreeable to you. Give me my wages, if not refrain. So they weighed out my wages. Listen to this. 30 pieces of silver. And then he goes on. And the Lord said to me, Throw it on the potter. That the princely price that they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, what is that talking about? It's talking about Judas, isn't it? Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. Start with verse 3. 27. Matthew 27, verse 3. Boys, take your shoes off back there and count your toes there, would you please? 27, is it? Is it okay. All right, well, all right. All right, here we go. Sorry about that technical difficulty. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Uh, then and go on to verse, what is it, verse 4? Yeah. Yeah, are we doing this, guys? Or four, uh, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. They wouldn't take the money back. He, I really believe that Judas, if, if he'd have come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, I believe God would have forgiven him, but he never did that. Then it says in verse 5, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now listen to what it says in verse 9 and 10. 600 years before this was prophesied. 9 and 10, guys. 9 and 10. There we go. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of whom was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, verse 10, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, I don't know about you, but that blows me away. That God can predict something 600 years before and write it out as what it is. Now, let's, let's go another. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Zechariah eleven fifteen. 15. It contrasts him as the good shepherd. Zechariah, let's go to Zechariah 12. Uh, it talks about how the Jews, the house of David, receive the spirit of grace and supplication when they look upon the one whom they pierce and they will mourn greatly over him. Zechariah 13, 7, the shepherd to be struck down, the sheep scattered. Jesus' disciples fled when Jesus rescued. This is all in Zechariah. What about his coming? Zechariah, look at, now go to Zechariah 14. I'm almost through here. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Look at this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Now remember, when, we, when Jesus comes back, we're going to meet him in the air. But look what it says in verse 2, if we can. If we can get there. All right, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is getting ready to be the battle of Armageddon. And the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from that city. Go on to verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight for those nations. He will fight in the day of battle. But look at verse 4. Here it is. And in that day... Remember when Jesus left? Where did he leave from? He left from the Mount of Olives. And the two angels were standing there, and they looked at the men, and they asked him this question. He said, meet you men of Galilee. Why stand you gazing up? 
The same Jesus who will return again. He's going to return, and he's going to return back to the Mount of Olives. And look what it says. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. And half of the mountain shall now move towards the north, and a half of it towards the south. In other words, why would it it be a valley? Because those people in Jerusalem that were trapped can get out through that way. All this 600 years before. Now let me get away from Zechariah just a minute. And I want you to go, if you will, if you got your Bibles, follow me. Go over to the book of Ezekiel. And go over to Ezekiel and listen to what he says. I'm trying, I'm trying to connect you here. Listen to what it says. It says, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Ah, she is broken. Who has, who has the gateway of the peoples? Now she's turned over to me, and I shall be filled. She'll be laid to waste. He says you're going to be laid to waste. Verse 3. Therefore says the Lord, God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, which caused many nations to come against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. And I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like a top of a rock. And it shall be a place of spreading nets. It shall be a place. They're going to level it off. The spread of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God, it shall become plunder for the nations. That's verse 5. Now, so, so in other words, here was this city. And in, in, in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in there and he destroys that city. He lays it out. But he didn't get to touch the people. Why did he not get to touch the people? Because the people had boats. And they got in their boats and there's an island out from Tyre. They went out there. Okay? Now, this, now, now notice this. 300 years later, 300 years, listen to what God writes. And when was this written? This was written 600, 600 B.C. Listen to this. It says, it goes on to say, For thus says the Lord God, verse 7, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, which he did, the king of Babylon, king of kings with horses and chariots. But come down here to verse 12. Because in 287 B.C., 300 years after that, Alexander the Great came to the same city. Listen to what he did. Verse 12, and they will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. And they will, listen to this, and they will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. And I will put the end of the sound of your songs in the sound. What does he mean? He was going to take, they're going to take everything in that city and put it in the water. Why? Alexander the Great decided I'm going to build me a road right out to that island. That's what he did. And he went, but this was three, 600 years before. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is God's word. Now, let me, let me do one more thing, and I'm going to stop. I promise you. Promise. I want to, I want to do this over in Daniel. And I want you to go, Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy. And here's what I want you, I want you to see this in Daniel. Uh, for, the, for I don't know how many years I've dealt with this thing and dealt with this thing. And the last time I tried to explain Daniel, uh, I, think I, had, I think I had two people try to commit suicide and four that had to go to the eye doctor have their eyes uncrossed. But I think I've got it. And I think I can put this together for you so you can see what Daniel's talking about. 
Because he says, starting with verse 24. That's where we're going to start. We're going to do a, well, okay. All right, verse 24, Daniel 9, 24. Let's just just go with the, I'll read it from here, but let's just go with the PowerPoint here, okay? Listen to what he says. So go to the next slide. He says, 70 weeks, 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. He's going to tell you three things to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. That's sin, deals with sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal the vision of prophecy and to anoint the most holy king. That's the kingdom is what he's talking about there. Now he goes, now therefore understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince came. All right, let's just stay with this. Then in verse 24, he tells Daniel the first three deal with sin, and the second three, he deals with the kingdom. All right, go to the next one. In verse 25, here's what it says, Knowing therefore the understanding that from the going forth of the command to restore the building of Jerusalem to the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks, and the street shall be built again on the wall even to the troublesome times. Okay, so verse 25 tells us that there will be seven weeks. What was it? From the decree. You read Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 2, and what it does, it tells us that Xerxes was king, but it says in the 20th year. And he was king in, and uh, what was it, five? Uh, well, anyway, we'll get there in just a minute. But you take 20 from that. All right, the 70th week of the last week will be the tribulation that comes after the rapture of the church. So we got 62 weeks, he tells us, to, to uh, the first seven weeks to build a wall, and then 62 weeks up to that. What's the cutoff here? When the, he tells us when the Messiah is taken out, when he says this, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. What does that mean? That means when Jesus is crucified. Now let's go on. Uh, it says, and sevens are actually, the sevens are actually years. So when in verse 25 it says seven weeks, then you take the seven times seven, which comes to 49. Thus, are you getting confused? And, and thus there were 49 years from the going forth of the command to rebuild the walls, which took place in 444 B.C. Now let's go a little farther. Go to the next one. Nehemiah 2.1, And I came to pass in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of the king of Xerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had been, had been sad in his presence before. So what's he saying? He's saying, I went and I was sad before him. And, and Xerxes asked him, why are you sad? Well, because my, the walls are down, the temple's not been built. So Xerxes signs the decree to let uh, Nehemiah go back to start building the wall and things. That's what it means, the decree. Go ahead. And then in verse 25, he tells us that in 62 weeks... From when until Messiah the Prince. So you take seven weeks plus the 62. Now we're talking about 70 weeks here. Seven weeks plus 62 weeks and add them together and you get 69 weeks. What's the 70th week? The 70th week is the tribulation. All right. So I got 60, I got 69 weeks. All right. You with me thus far? All right. Here we go. So then you take the 62 weeks and you multiply them by seven, 62 weeks, which equals 400. Uh, 434 weeks alright now you take the 62 weeks plus 7 69 and now you multiply it 69 times 7 483 weeks is what the total is alright now let's go again now what you have to you have to realize is that when Daniel did all this because when I every time I've tried to do this I screwed it up and why did I screw it up because 
because I tried to stay with the lunar calendar. And the lunar calendar says there's 360 day, uh, there have six, uh, 360 days in a year. But we don't go by the lunar calendar anymore. We go by the solar calendar, which is what? 365 days. So what you have to realize is that the calendar of Daniel's time was the lunar calendar of the Hebrew calendar was the year was 360 days, unlike the solar calendar, which is 365. Now, I know I'm really getting your eyes crossed now. All right, here we go. Go to the next one. So if I take the Hebrew or the lunar calendar of 360 days, multiply 360 times 483, which was 69 times 7, 483, the 360 times the 483 equals 173,880 days. Okay? Now, which was the day, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Because what I had to do, it was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. He'd been in Jerusalem before, but this was the first time that Jesus ever rode into Jerusalem and declared, I'm the Messiah. So Daniel, exactly the week, the 69 weeks, is the exact day that Daniel rode in on that donkey. And the first time he declared Jerusalem and he was the Messiah. Go to the next one. The date Jesus rode in Jerusalem was March the 30th. 33 A.D., that's been proven by history. Now, I had a problem because I would never add up until I realized that March the 30, 33 A.D., Rome was in the control, and they had switched to the solar calendar, calendar which was the year now 365. All right? Go on to the next one. So if I take 173,880 days and convert it over to the solar calendar of our day, which is three, 365 Point twenty four point twenty two days, hundred seventy three days divided by three sixty five point twenty two four sixty years, and then take the decimal point of point sixty eight. I get twenty four days. Days are rounded off to twenty five days, and so as a result of that, go on to the next one. So then, the time prophesied for the Messiah to arrive comes out to be four hundred seventy six years and twenty five days. So then you add that number to March the 5th, 444 B.C., when the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem issued. That brings us to March the 30th, 3380, the very day of the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, would you all like for me to go through that again? <laughs> I'm telling you guys, this book is unbelievable and the answers that you need for your life is right here in this book God, it, this book is not just a book it's living and it's alive it's alive it's alive and with that book being alive that book being alive what is the answer that you have in your life that you need I pray that more than anything else, you come to Jesus. He is that seed. He is that one that we need in our life more than anything else. And I, this same book that I have shown you these prophecies and how they've come, I've showed you these. I'm telling you right now that he also says, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming again. I'm asking you this question. Are you ready? Do you know Jesus? I don't take away everything else. 
do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you don't, you're going to be in trouble. And I don't want that to happen. So I pray and hope that you will come to Christ today. We're going to have a verse of invitation.